This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Rosie O'Donnell has been a stand-up comic, a Star Search contestant, an actress, a talk show host, a philanthropist, an activist, a magazine editor, a blogger, a Broadway and television producer, and a mom. Rosie has five kids. Doing it all was a pattern Rosie established early. In high school, she was voted homecoming queen, prom queen, senior class president, and class clown. Rosie O'Donnell is not one to mince words, and she's never shied away from a controversial subject. Her combination of confidence and conviction has led to very public disagreements with celebrities such as Tom Selleck, Donald Trump, and Elizabeth Hasselbeck from The View. But that same combination led to her usually successful talk show, The Rosie O'Donnell Show, where she sat down with the biggest stars of the time and talked about what mattered to them and to her. She earned herself the nickname The Queen of Nice. Rosie O'Donnell is nice and grateful for what she has. She might say that has something to do with her childhood when she suffered the hardest blow imaginable. You know, my mother died. Right, so right. I How was old were you? Ten. So she that's, died when you were 10. And there were two younger siblings and two older siblings. So that's... Right. So that was really hard. That's the shadow over everything. Yes. And it, and it sort and of... And you were close to her. Not really. I mean, okay. I, I think that she was very Irish and reserved. Like my father, there was no I love yous in the house. There right. was no hugging. You know, it was more like... Like I went to Jackie's house all the time. My, my best friend still lived across the street when I was a kid. And um, her mother would say, I love you to them. And I remember being struck like cold from that like you would say that to each other like no one said that to each other in my family ever mm. until we were really older adults and mm. even then it was difficult so i remember when i had my first uh, child when parker who's now 18 the i love you's were frequent and fluid and mm-hmm. you know even now i dropped my boy off at school this morning mm-hmm. and he's 13 you know i'm like bye blake i love you he's like love you too mom like casual nothing don't even and that was so foreign to me as a child and i craved it 
I craved it. And when a mother dies in a family like that, things turn to disarray because the washing machine, the you know things that my dad just had no clue about, like mm-hmm. he mashed the potatoes in the water. Mm-hmm. He was trying to make mashed potatoes after she died. Like all of the domesticity went out of the house and it was so kind of stark and cold and, and run down. And, you know, the things that a mother's touch generally bring to your life were missing. And that's all the, all the softness and the, and the kind of safety mm-hmm. and security. To prepare the family for a life without her, Rosie's mother taught each of her five children a different meal to cook. Rosie learned how to make London broil, which she says she still won't eat because of the memories it conjures up. In her hometown of Comac, Long Island, not far from where I grew up, Rosie began to plot out her future in show business. You know, I never wanted to be a talk show host. That was never my goal. I wanted to be on Broadway. So, you know, I wanted to be a Bette Midler backup singer, one of the harlots. So when I was, you know, in in Comac uh, High School South in 1979, and I would take the train in and see a matinee every Wednesday and cut out of school and and do standing room. And so my goal was Broadway, and I saw Bette on Broadway in Clowns and a Half Shell, one of my first shows ever. You know, I didn't grow up listening to Johnny Carson like every comic tells you. I didn't, you know, admire to be like— Joan Rivers. No, no, my mother didn't. I didn't want to do stand-up either. No, I never even thought of it. My mother didn't like Joan Rivers. My mother thought she was mean. And I remember my mother telling me Toadie Fields was a real comedian. Phyllis Diller was a real comedian. But that Joan Rivers is not nice. And she said, you never go far in life. Because Phyllis you. Diller was self-deprecating. Exactly. And Joan was made fun of Elizabeth Taylor, which I think to my mother was sacrosanct. You know? <laughs> so uh, I, I never like thought of it. So when I was in high school, I would do the play for the seniors, right? Everybody makes fun of the teachers and like a Saturday Night Live type thing right. the senior year. And I was a freshman and they knew that I was sort of into comedy and they said, would you write the skits? So I did. So I was the only sort of freshman allowed to be, and for every year, sophomore, junior, I was writing these skits. Right. So the last year, my senior year, this guy comes in and, and says, hey, did you write all this stuff? And I said, yeah. He goes, why don't you be a stand-up? I'm like, I don't know how to do stand-up. He goes, well, I own a club, Eastside Comedy Club in Huntington near you. Why don't you come and do stand-up? What, okay, what, <laughs> what year is that? That is 1978. What is a stand-up comedy club like in Huntington in 1978? Well, I was 16 years old. I just got my license, but I wasn't really old enough to get into clubs. So I took my neighbor, Doreen Norden's license. Remember when they were paper and you could take a, a little pin and scrape it? So I had fake ID to so get in. So your whole in. career is built on a crime, actually. Without a doubt. Okay, okay, I was great. impersonating Dory Norton. Right. Um, so I went in and, you know, when you're 16 years old, you're fearless, right? Also, everybody I knew from my high school showed up that night because it was uh, a Saturday night or something and he let me go on and do a few minutes and I killed because everybody I knew was in the room, right? So I'd make jokes like, Marilyn's going out with Mitchell and Mike doesn't know. And all my friends would be like, ah, I made fun of the teachers, like common things. That So the owner said, well, that was really good. Why don't you come back tomorrow? So I went back the next night. I didn't know anyone. It was a school night. I bombed like you have never, <sighs> oh, my God, like a horrible death. And I went home and I thought, I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm watching um, Merv Griffin and I see Jerry Seinfeld. And I see him doing his act and talking like this. <laughs> and I remembered his act. You know, there were no VCRs then. But I remembered, like, you know, my car stopped and I open up the hood. And I'm thinking, what am I looking for? An on-off switch? On-off? And I'm thinking, <laughs> hey. And so I remembered it. Yeah. So like the, we had to back then. Right. The club owner called me again, Richie, and said, come back. Why don't you come back? You were good that first night. And so I come back and I do Seinfeld's act almost verbatim. And I get off stage and Richie and... 
you know, a bunch of other comics are standing around and said, where'd you get that material? I said, uh, this guy named Jerry, who was on Merv Griffin yesterday. They go, you're not allowed to do that. I'm like, why not? They go, you have to write your own jokes. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait. Streisand doesn't write her own songs. Did, did you do well? Did the audience like of it? Of course. And you were sitting there going, didn't you hear those yeah, people? Going, they were laughing. They're a, loving me. A joke's a joke. I don't have to write the jokes. <laughs> what are you nuts? Barbara Streisand. Harold Arlen wrote those songs. Right. Not she Sinatra. doesn't write that stuff. And so, you know, th- then I they said, well, why don't you just hang around here and uh, you can watch. So I started watching, right? I started going there almost every night, watching comics. And what was then, the crowd like? Well, back then, you know, it was sort of the heyday. It was starting with the heyday. Like, Eddie Murphy had just gotten on Saturday Night Live. Right. So somebody from our little club broke out to the, the big time. And it, comedy clubs were kind of hot in the mm-hmm. 80s. You know, I sort of hit— It was the, new. Yeah, I hit the wave at the, exactly the right time. Lorne Michaels said that to me once. He said that when Saturday Night Live started back then in the mid-70s, 75, he said there were like six comedy clubs in the United States. Exactly. And you knew every stand-up working. Right. There was a time when I started where I knew every female comic was working, working in the country. Right. right. And everybody knew each other and everybody would help each other. Hey, there's a club Tickles in Warren, Ohio. Right. I can talk to the guy for you. you Giggles. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't have to audition because you knew somebody who went there. And a lot of times I'd go to the clubs and they'd pick you up in a car at the airport and, and they'd have a sign and they'd be driving you back to the comedy condo and the guy'd go, you know, you're the fourth girl I had. The last three sucked. If you ain't good, I'm never booking a girl again. I was like, no pressure. You know, just my entire gender is riding on this. So, um, you know, the comic called me and said, come back. And then I did. I was hanging out there. And then I would do open mic night. So Shirley Hemphill, do you remember what's happening? Uh-huh. Big, heavy black lady. Uh-huh. She played. Okay. She was the headliner. Now, that was a big deal in 1980, right? She's the headliner. And she's there a day early watching open mic night. I come off the stage. She comes over to me. She goes, little one, little one, come here. I said, yeah. Now, I'm an 18-year-old kid, Alec, but I look about 14, right? Sure. And she says, "Um, you're funny. Come with me. She takes me in through the kitchen to Richie's office and says, I want her to open for me this weekend. And he goes, no way. She's too new. She doesn't have any act. She says, I want her to MC. I want her to open and do every show, and I want you to pay her 25 bucks a night. That was $100. I was 18 and in high school. I thought my head was going to explode. You were Kennedy. Yeah, exactly. My head was going to explode. And so she really helped my career. I started doing that, and then I, I never stopped. And you did that until Star Search was 82? Uh, 84. 84 yes. was when you were on. Right. Now, obviously, this idea of the talent search show, this goes back to Leonard Sillman yep. on Broadway years. I mean, we, we, this has been forever. And then, then, of course, there's a renaissance of this now with the voice and the this and the hand and the foot and the tongue and every right. other show. Right. What was that like back then for you? Well, it was unbelievable because unlike— Star Search was big. Huge, And unlike today, where there are so many media platforms and there are so many shows like it, we had four channels, five maybe. And I remember my Nana, whenever somebody was on, like Toadie Fields was on Merv Griffin or the Don Ho show, which was on at 12 in the afternoon, I'd have my Nana press play and record on the cassette player so I could listen to Toadie Fields on the shows that I would miss at school. And I think back about that now, and it's kind of trippy. So The TV was the fireplace. Oh, my God. Totally. So what happened was... Star Search was so popular, and I was on the second season. Comics had two minutes, 120 seconds to do material. Did you have a clean routine? Oh, Did yeah. Did you always have a clean routine? Oh, no, not in clubs necessarily, but right. I had you know enough you stuff. You had a, a primetime routine. The problem was I kept winning. So I had enough clean material for like five weeks, and then I kept winning. And I was like, shit. So I called up comics who were my friends and said, can I use that bit about this? Can I use that? And they, a lot of them said yes. You know, Jeanette Barber let me use a lot of bits. Carol Henry let me use bits. And, you know, I had people trying to help me. And so then I, I lost, and, and I eventually – but I won like 
God, like it was like twelve thousand dollars, Alec, or like fourteen thousand dollars. And yeah. I remember thinking, I couldn't believe it. Sure, I couldn't believe it. I went for the final one hundred thousand dollar thing, and I lost. And um, I remember never being so nervous in my life. You know, TV was so different back then. In nineteen eighty four, they put you up at the Sunset Strip, right? It was at Sunset and Vine where mm-hmm. they uh, filmed it. And I didn't have any money, right? They'd give you per diem, but I didn't know to get per diem. So I had all that I had in my pocket was like, you know, $40. So I'd walk every day to Carney's, you know, that hot dog stand on Sunset. And for $1.40, you could get fries, a small Coke, and a hot dog. And that's all I had. So it's so funny. You watch it. You watch me losing weight every single week (laughs) because I didn't didn't really, you know. But I ended up winning all this money, and I went from being an opening act to being a headliner from Star Search overnight. And then you get into the movie business. Then I become a VJ. I do Star Search, and then I do Give Me a Break. What happened was I was um, at a comedy club, and Lorne Michaels was there with Cher and Brandon Tarnikoff. And it's called Igby's Comedy Club. I know Igby's. Okay. And Dana Carvey was was auditioning to get on SNL. And I was the next comic up. And the waitresses were my friends, and they said, we're not dropping the check until after your set. So while Brandon and they wanted the check Mm because they had seen Dana, I was on, and I killed Right mm-hmm. now, it's uh, I had a decade under my belt of doing stand up. Mm-hmm. Right, so um, they came up to me after the show, Brandon Tarnikoff, and said, "Hi, I want you to call this number at NBC tomorrow. We have a job for you." And I called my sister. It was like three in the morning, New York time. I said, "I got on SNL. Oh my God, Brandon Tarnikoff was here with Lauren Michaels, and I am going to be on SNL." And I walk in the next day to NBC, and they said, "We're going to put you on. Give me a break." <laughs> and I was like. <laughs> Now, I was still thrilled to be on TV, and so that was the show. I did about 10 episodes of that in the last season. After that, that was 86, and then 88, they were auditioning VJs for VH1 and at the Improv with Bud Friedman. And I went there, and I I did my set, and the guy came out, and he said, you're really good, but you don't really look like MTV. And I said, I know. And he goes, but we have another station, VH1, and at that time it was Rita Coolidge. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so uh, he said, you want to audition for that? You'd have to fly yourself to New York. I said, all right. So I flew when myself. they played White Wedding oh, like 90 times a day. Exactly right. Yeah. And they said, you know, you can audition. So I went on camera and I auditioned and uh, went home to L.A. And then I wrote him a thank you note, Steve Leeds. I said, thanks for the shot. I really appreciate it. And he was so moved that somebody wrote him a thank you note that he sent the tape over to the VH1 people. The guy who was hiring is named Ed Harrington, very Irish guy. He mm-hmm. saw Rosie O'Donnell right. and he hired me. So it was a thank you note that got me How to How long me. did you do that? I did that for about two years. What I, was that like? It was— Because it seems like for the person who wanted to, the clams on the half-shell career, yeah. you meander and yeah. go here and here where it takes you. What was it like for you to be doing that Well, that everyone, everyone said not to do it. People who were, quote-unquote, advising my career, like Bud Friedman, or, you know, I didn't even have an agent really then. So why did you do it? Because I knew it was in 23 million homes, and I thought that it would teach me how to be conversational versus presentational. Mm-hmm. Presentational is what you do with stand-up. You've already prepared it. It's a wrapped package. Mm-hmm. They undo the bow. They undo the it's thing. It's a one-way and street. Kaboom. There's the joke, right? Okay. But this is more conversational. Can you carry on a conversation with a camera and treat it like a person? And I thought it was a skill that would really help me. And I also thought that many millions of people seeing you, you can't say no. Was it also about money? It was $100,000. Because I, I don't want to assume, but are you like me, where a lot of the decisions I made was about money? Yeah. At that time, I was like, you know, 21 maybe. And sure. uh, okay. to get 100 grand, because I remember saying to them, I'm giving up a lot of money to not go on the road, because I was making good money on right. the road. And 
you would have to definitely cover that. And so they came up with a hundred grand. So what I would do is it was eight hours a day, but you could film that in about two hours. It was four breaks an hour at two minutes a break. So they would give you the pitches that you had to do, like, you know, this is Rosie O'Donnell coming at you on VH1, Video Hits 1, the other music television. That was Whitney Houston, her seventh single off her debut album. Whitney Houston is doing VH1 a go-go. Our dance show, only here on VH1, Saturday nights, 8 to 11. You do have a good memory. But that was about 14 seconds. Now I had a minute and a half left to fill. And there's nobody but me and two cameramen. Right. So my goal was to get the cameraman to, to laugh, laugh so that the camera would jiggle, right? right? So that was that was my goal. I want to go back and see tapes to see if I can find that jiggling camera. I bet you can. I bet I can. Yeah. And so I did that for about two years, and, and that's that, how Penny Marshall saw me. She saw you on VH1? Yep. I had just gotten an agent, and I sit next to this woman on a plane in coach, and she's very bitchy to the stewardess. And she's saying, I ordered a salad, and I start making her laugh. I'm like, here, take my salad. <laughs> give me a dessert. You're such a – and I right. put her, her luggage – and I was just making her laugh, right? And so it turns out she's an agent. She's a new agent at William Morris. She's Julia Roberts' agent's assistant. Okay, so I'm like, wow, that's pretty big for me. So I start talking to her and and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going out to audition for a game show. And she's like, oh, and uh, good luck. So I don't see her. You know, I dropped her a note or something. And then six months later, I sit next to her again on another plane. (laughs) Is that the weirdest story? Mm. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I got offered win, lose, or draw for kids on Disney. They're going to pay me $50,000 a year, five-year contract, and I'm going to host that show. And she said, you're not. And I'm now your agent, and we're too close to God for me not to intervene, and it's too weird to sit next to you twice. What's her name? Risa Shapiro. Oh, you have Risa Shapiro. Yeah, Of course. Yep. And she um, becomes my agent. She gets a phone call. Hi, do you represent that VJ? Can she play baseball? She calls me up. She says, can you play baseball? Can she play baseball? I said, if there's one thing I can do better than Julia <laughs> Roberts, it's baseball. And uh, so I went and I auditioned for the movie. You had to play baseball to even get a reading. And I, of course, am very good at baseball. So um, I went in and uh, got the part. So everywhere you're going, you're showing up, obviously, with stand-up. And then you're making the guys laugh and jiggle the camera. And there's a velocity and a pace and an energy to what you're doing. And now you're making movies. And does that become a different muscle for you? Do you sit there and go, man, this is slow and boring? And- yes, but I love the camaraderie. I love the set of League of Their Own with all the... People playing baseball Tom. and the oh, not it's the actors, the camera guys, right, right. and like you know all of the crew doing the thing where they pick the cards and yeah. you form a family. exactly. And right. it was so loving and so beautiful. And stand up, you're alone. You're going on these clubs, you know, right. for ten years, fifteen years. I was alone on the road. You know, I'd go by myself. I'd get in a plane and I'd fly to someplace in the middle of the country, and they'd pick me up. And you feel and, homeless. Yeah, and you and, feel and, and, lonely. Yeah. And then, so when you go to make a league of their own. And you get the response you get. I mean, the movie's a huge success. Everybody loves you, blah, blah, blah. Do you say to yourself, well, I mean, which is, I'm not assuming you do, but often people sit there and they go, well, this is it. I'm a movie star and I'm going to be lighting one off the other for the next 40 years. <laughs> well, I will tell you this. When they said that Madonna was going to be playing my best friend, you know, we had all been cast and Penny said that to me. She's going to come in. You have to make her laugh and hopefully she'll do the film. Like, I had diarrhea. I thought, Madonna. <laughs> Madonna, how do you be friends with Madonna? What the hell? Like, you know, in our lifetime, I'm 51 years old. We're almost the same age, right? And to see her at 20-something explode like she did. And I remember she had been friendly with Sandra Bernhardt a little bit. And as I was a VJ thinking, how can you be friends with her? How could somebody be friends with, like, Elvis, like Madonna? And here I am playing her best friend. So I knew when she was cast in that role that my career was going to take a whole different trajectory because of it. And it did. 
And for you, that experience of working with her, it was positive. It was positive and it was sisterly. Like, you know, some people have said to me, I thought you guys were lovers. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like, you know, <laughs> some, even Sandra said to me she once. She begged me. I told her, get away from me, Madonna. <laughs> Please. I'm such an Irish Catholic girl. Like, you can count on both hands how many people I've been with my entire 51 years. You know, my friend, I don't, I don't know. It never crossed my mind because I met her the day after I saw Truth or Dare. Right. And in that movie, Truth or Dare, she goes to her mother's grave and it's her own name on her mother's grave. And my mother... Same experience. My mother's name is my name. Mm -hmm. So when I went to see her grave, when I finally got my license at 17 years old, there I saw for the first time Roseanne O'Donnell. And it's flippy to think to yourself, mm -hmm. I know someone else who experienced that same thing. So when I met her, I said, I saw your movie yesterday and my mom died when I was little and I'm named after her too. And, there, and it was like right away, we had a sister thing, you know, right away going on. Now, Penny's in the kind of comedy college of cardinals there she did the hit show she's funny as hell right was she helpful to you as a director or did she just leave you alone how, how did oh you work God. as an she, actor she was amazing because she i love to improvise and i come to find out later in all the movies i did after that not every director likes this but she would go you know okay somebody gotta go over there catch a ball fall in the stand come up with a hot dog who could do it now seriously half the time people didn't understand what she was saying yeah so I'd raise my hand and she'd go, Rosie, again? All right. So my part was not really that big. And she kept giving me all this extra stuff to do. And uh, after you got one take, she'd go, try it again. Like, she'd get the grip. The guy who played my dad was the grip. And he'd come down and he looked Irish, an older guy. And uh, she said, okay, put a hat on him. He'll be your father. And let's talk about a steak dinner near the bus. Go. Like, so it was a lot of improvisation, which for me is great. Like doing, you know, curb mm -hmm. your enthusiasm mm -hmm. like you do, I know so well. I love that. I mean, that's, to me, the most fun because it's like stand-up where you can go anywhere and say anything you want. Did you go right into another film before uh, League got released? Yes, I did Sleepless in Seattle. Right, exactly. And now. so yeah, I did League, and it wasn't out yet, and then my agent— And now a woman who—I mean, Penny is discerning, and Penny is you know, well-regarded as a director and so forth, but now you go and work with a woman who was the most discerning and who has the most options. And who I'm so— And could have cast anybody and had anybody, and she chose you. And I'm so intimidated because it's Nora Ephron, and right. I've read every single thing she ever wrote in her right. life, and I knew about her sister and her parents and what they had written. So I go into the Apthorpe, into her big— you know, apartment that has a library full of, and I'm looking at what book she's reading, and I'm, you know, and she calls me in, and uh, she says hello, and I say hello, and I'm so, like, happy to be there, and we clicked right away, and, and she's like, wow. She goes, wait a minute, and she goes and gets the script off the facts that Delia had been working on and pieces of that new scene, and she goes, read this, and I read that, and then uh, I left, and I called my agent in the car and said I got the job. And she said, you know, this is your second movie audition. You don't really understand. You got the first one, but you're not probably going to get this. And I said, no, I got the job. And I did. And the, the reason, Nora told me, was that night at dinner, she said, oh, I, I interviewed this girl today. I think I might hire her. Her name's Rosie O'Donnell. And her son, Jacob, who was 10 at the mm -hmm. time, who was a Madonna freak, mm -hmm. was like, oh, my God, Mom, I know her. And he ended up being a gay man now who was a writer mm -hmm. at the, uh, the, Times. the Times, right, a great guy. And, and then Nora ended up getting me an apartment in the Apthorpe after the movie. And Jacob used to come over to my apartment and tell me about his being gay and not knowing how to tell his mom. And so I sort of helped. What did you tell him? Oh, well, I helped him come out. His mother knew. But you know, his mother said to me, do you think he's gay? I'm like, right. yes, I do. Right. And he was like 10 or 11. She goes, I think he might be, too. I said, yeah, he is. Some nights I'd come home when he's like 14. He's drunk outside. I'm like, come here. You're going to go up to my apartment. Come with us. I'd take him up to the apartment. I'd call Nora. I'd go, I have him. I'll bring him back in a little while. <laughs> right. It was like living in Queens. Yeah. Everybody knew each other. Yeah. 
But he was a great kid, and, you know, I have pictures of him playing with Parker, you know, when Parker was a baby. And, and then I have a t- picture of them when we did Love Loss and What I Wore at the opening night. Parker's six foot something, standing next to Jacob. Right. And it's just so weird how life goes like that. I'm not big on the whole gay identity thing in terms of, you know, that, that story, because I'm sure you've exhausted that. But what I'm curious about is how, over the arc of a long career now, that's changed for you. And it was being a gay woman, being a gay performer, uh, going back to, you know, 78, if you're at the club in Huntington, on through now. It's many, many years. Yes. It's uh, 35 years yep. uh, since you were a kid doing this stuff. How's that changed for you? Remarkable, the amount of change that's happened just in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, I was coming out of therapy two weeks ago in Nyack, New York, and I see two high school girls holding hands, walking through the parking lot. And like, I almost fill up with tears. I stopped them. I said, excuse me. Now, they have no idea, right? They're the, there's a cutoff. My fame is over, right? Now, I know there are people who still, but it's not like it was, right? So I said, excuse me. And they sort of like, what's this old lady's talking to me? I said, I just want to tell you that uh, I'm a 51-year-old gay woman. And as a gay woman, to see you two girls, what are you in high school? They're like, yeah, we're in 10th grade. To see you holding hands in the middle of town, walking through, it just, it moves me so much. And they're like, oh, really? Oh, thanks. All right. See ya. <laughs> Here I am like, come here, mommy. But, yes. but I don't know. You know, people sort of knew that I was gay, in my opinion, in show business, because I never hid it. It's never like I pretended to have a boyfriend or, although people say I did that with Tom Cruise, but it wasn't a sexual thing with him. I still have a crush on him, you know, but it's not like I, I wanted to screw him. I just thought, God, that is a... That is something about I like to have that. breakfast with him. Exactly. I like yeah. to have him, you know, with no shirt on, painting something in my house, <laughs> you know, and then leaving after he Serving gave me— Serving your breakfast. Exactly right. So anyway, people knew is what I thought, right? But I remember, like, when Ellen called me up and said, I'm going to have my character, Ellen Morgan, come out as a lesbian on my TV show. And I remember thinking, why the hell is she doing this? She's going to ruin her entire career and her life. It was such a foreign concept. This is pre-Will and Grace, okay? No one had ever even considered it. The only people who were out were rock stars. Right. There was no actor or actress or comedian who was out, mm-hmm. you know? And I remember th- even Charles Nelson Riley wasn't out. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> absurdly gayish people. Yeah. And I remember thinking she's making a huge mistake, you know? And then there was that tremendous amount of fallout that happened afterwards. I was like, it pained me for her. It really did. Now, listen, in hindsight, oh, my God, the courage that it took for her to do that at the time she did it and the way she did it uh, was pretty uh, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did not possess that. And so she did that. And then Will and Grace came on. And I remember them telling me at my uh, show, oh, there's a new sitcom that's starting. It's about a gay man living with a straight girl. And uh, I go, well, that'll never work. Do you remember Love, Sydney with Tony Randall? Right. <laughs> he had his dead partner's picture on the mantle. And the Catholic Church was protesting, and it was off in two weeks, and this was Tony Randall, right? So uh, I thought that'll never work. So then Will and Grace comes on. Not only does it work, it blows up. Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. It's like the society, culture, we have changed in such a quick amount of time that people don't even realize it, you know? To think that in my lifetime, in my career, that you can be an out performer, actor, Playing against type, Neil Patrick Harris, playing a womanizer on that show, mm-hmm. be out married with twin boys, mm-hmm. and it doesn't hurt your career, and it doesn't do anything to you, you know. So in a way, it's the most beautifully astounding, inspirational thing that I can think about in, in my 51 years of living. Now, in the time that you, from being a young woman and a performer in this business, and you're making your way, and you're succeeding, and you're a gay woman, did you ever think about 
marriage, kids, family? Like, when did that Polaroid begin to become more in focus for you? I always knew I wanted kids. You did? Always. But I never thought I would get married to a man. I mean, I didn't really think— Except Tom. Of course, but he, he didn't ask. He could be the donor. I, yeah, I would not have turned that down. But uh, no, I just, you know, I dated one guy when I was 28 for about a year and a half, two years. His name was Mike. We lived together. Great guy. Six foot one or six foot two. I had only dated two women before that. I just sort of didn't do it at all. It was just like, you know, whatever. And, I'm busy. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got a career to plan. And... Uh, so um, I dated this guy, and I remember thinking, maybe I'm not gay. Look at this. Maybe I'm not gay. But uh, it turned out, you know, I was wrong. So uh, that was the only time that I thought to myself, well, maybe I am straight. Maybe this – I don't know what this is. Maybe, um, you know, because it's, it's like what people don't understand about homosexuality. It's not that you can't have satisfactory sex with the opposite gender. It's just that your heart and your soul and your connection and your desire for emotional intimacy is only really served by – uh, somebody of the same sex. That's interesting. I've never heard anybody articulate it that way before, ever. Yeah. I've, that, n- I've never heard anyone say that. I mean, but so there was a period, Mike was his name? Yeah, Six Mike. Two, Mike. Yeah. You still in touch with him? Um, not so much, but uh, we had been for about 10 years. Was, I was 28. I'm 50 now, right? No, no, so it was no, half a life ago. But uh, I did, did you s- leave all those people behind? Did you shed a skin when you became famous and went into the business? Because for me, all my friendships began when I got in this business. It's interesting. it's so defining to me. I have two friends, Jeannie and Jackie. They're my friends since I was in elementary school. And they're still my best friends. And the three of us see each other at least, you know, Jackie probably twice a week. Jeannie probably because she's out on the island at least once a month. And the three of us are like sisters and they're family to me. Jackie's mother raised me. You know, after my mother died, I would eat dinner at their house like five nights a week. She bought me my first bra. She bought me, you know, tampons when I needed them as a kid. She was a mother, mm-hmm. right? So, and she's still alive, Bernice. And so I see Jackie uh, like like a sister all the time. But aside from those two, I don't see anyone from high school. Mm-hmm. I don't see anyone from my old stomping grounds on Long Island. And most of my friends, aside from those two, are friends that I met in this business. Mm-hmm. Because it's very hard to, for people to understand. It is lonely. I mean, it's yes. so lonely. And this it's hard to explain so it to someone else yeah. because they it's held up as the be-all and end-all. It's held up oh. as – and it, it really isn't. The reality of it is very different than what you expected from it. I'll never forget. This is going to seem mundane perhaps, but this really defines what I'm talking about. I remember I would be sitting like – I'm in the Canadian Rockies shooting a movie with Tony Hopkins. And I'll never forget my assistant would FedEx me my mail. And I pick up this thing and it says, you know, the the dates of the bacon exhibit at the Met and it's going to close and I'm not going to get back there. I'm going to miss the bacon exhibit. I felt so awful because I thought I'm missing my life. I'm missing everything. Like when I did 30 Rock, people say, why did you love 30 Rock? I said, because they would work the schedule with me. But when you're in the movie business, they are so punishingly unempathetic. Because they got 90 days to do it they if they're lucky. They got to get this thing done. That's and, right. And cutting days and cutting costs is what they're all about. Well, I remember when I was on my talk show and you were saying, I really want to get a sitcom. I really want to do a sitcom with me. Remember we were talking about What did it? I tell you? Right. You I said, said, we're going to do Jackie Gleason and you're Jackie Gleason and I'm Audrey Meadows. Yeah. I said, you're going to be the brassy, yes, tough character and exactly. I'm going to be your withering husband. Right. So I remember when people were saying that there was a show, 30 Rock, and Alec Baldwin, and some people were saying to me, he's not going to do a sick. I'm like, yes, he is. You know, because I knew, because I had spoke, we had spoken about it, how taxing it is. And I knew what you were craving was some kind of a normal schedule. Like a sitcom is the perfect gig for every actor. If you could get a 30 minute sitcom, I think that, you know, one hour drama is just like doing a movie for nine months in a row. It's exhausting.
In a minute, Rosie O'Donnell gives me the lowdown on what it's like having a baby in your 50s. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds make mom's mother's day and all the 364 days that aren't mother's day with a bartesian cocktail maker at 50 dollars off visit b-a-r-t-e-s-i-a-n.com backslash mother now to get 50 dollars off the bartesian premium cocktail maker bartesian premium cocktails on demand I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender This is Alec Baldwin. For much of her career, Rosie O'Donnell has created and supported numerous children's charities, from issues like pediatric AIDS to making sure New York City kids, and particularly inner-city kids, can see a real play with real actors on a Broadway stage. If you live in New York and haven't been to Broadway, as Rosie says, it's, quote, like living in Hawaii and not having access to the beach. Rosie realized she wanted children of her own, so in 1995, at age 33, she adopted a baby boy, Parker. The balancing act between motherhood and career, particularly one in the entertainment industry, took her by surprise. When uh, Parker was a baby, you know, I, I didn't know anyone who had a nanny. I grew up like you did. That was an unheard of thing. I didn't even know anyone who had a babysitter, right? right. Besides somebody who'd come over for three hours when your parents went to, you know, Red Lobster. Right. So, um... I did Harriet the Spy, my first movie, after he was born. And he was about three or four months old, maybe five months old. And I took him to Canada to film, and I asked my cleaning lady to come with me to watch him because I didn't have anybody to help. So she came, and the third day that I came home from a 12-hour day on the set, he wouldn't come to me. I went, come here, buddy. And he he wouldn't. He was staying with Maria. And I remember at that moment, I called my agent and said, you need to get me a job that's going to keep me in New York. 
because I don't want him growing up on movie sets. I want him to have his own bedroom. I want him to know his cousins. I want him to have a normal life. And so that's the reason I did my talk show was because I wanted— You and I, it's a mirror. That's why I did 30 Rock. And and my daughter lived in L.A., but I said to Lauren, he said, what's it going to take— I will give you off every Monday and every Friday. Any weekend you want to go to go see your daughter who was in L.A., which in the beginning I would do. And then as my daughter got older, I mean, I stopped going every other weekend because, like, I would drive out there and, like, drive my daughter to a party and drop her off. Believe me, I know. Yeah, I you have teenagers yeah, and it's right. hell. Now, we, now we, but when does the, the, the moment come? You're like, let's have the baby. Let's get this pot on the stove and get this thing going. What happens? Well, I did um, all those movies in a row that, like, the number one movie, Three Summers in a Row. Right. So first I did uh, League and then Sleepless in Seattle and then the Flintstones. Well, that's pretty astonishing, you know, especially because I was like, I wasn't a trained actress. I was I'm a, com- a comic, right? I didn't even really go to college. I went for one year. So I thought that was pretty astounding. And um, I wanted to do Broadway and Grease was coming out. So I called my agent and said, I want to go do that. She's like, are you kidding me? You're on this role movie wise. And I'm like, but I really, really want to do it. So I'd saved a lot of money, you know, I spend uh, wisely. I'm not like a big, I don't go buy clothes and shoes and stuff. And so I... Uh, You're at the sale rack at the Gap, I read Exactly, that. it's yeah. a truth. So I, I went and um, auditioned for Greece, and I got it on Broadway. And I said, when I'm done with this run, I'm going to adopt a baby. So I was 32. How long did you do Greece? A year. And can I tell you, Alec? Dear Lord in heaven, it was like Groundhog Day, the movie only without Bill Murray. Oh, my God. It was, I couldn't, I would love to do Broadway again, but I would never uh, commit to We're that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, Lord help me. I just me. got off of Broadway. I know. I'm sorry oh, I missed honey. it. But boy, that's something. That's something. And uh, so I decided I was going to adopt a baby. And, and it wasn't, I wasn't dating anyone. It wasn't like, you know, I was, uh, I saw, I was seeing a girl who was in the, cast of Greece, but I, it wasn't like we were going to have kids together. I was going to adopt this baby. And she's like, well, what about me? I'm like, well, I don't know about you, but this is what I'm doing in my life. And so I adopted. She's like, well, what would I be to him? I don't know what you're going to be. It wasn't like I was doing a we. I was just adopting uh-huh. a baby myself. And then I went and did Harriet the Spy and said to my agent, I got to stay in New York. And at the time, Kathy Lee was threatening to quit. I said, get me that gig with Reach. And they said, oh, she's staying, but... They're willing to give you your own show like that. And I said, well, the only thing I'd want to do is Merv Griffin. i just simply rip off his show. I would do exactly Merv Griffin, a talk show where nobody gets hurt, where everybody's friends, where nobody's going to embarrass anyone. Where people inhale helium balloons. You got it. And you have While you're blindfolded. Fun cooking segments, and everybody likes each other. It wasn't like scandalized, like, right? So I drew the set. Like I said, this is what I want the set to look like. I drew where the band was supposed to be. I decided I wanted a curtain. Like, I, I knew exactly what I did the logo myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I was totally like, here's how you do it. You were it. doing Seinfeld's Act of the Club all over again. I was doing Merv. Yeah, I'm doing I just, Merv. I did Merv. Merv's gone. Yeah. He's not coming down here. Well, actually, he, he, uh, he was around then. <laughs> and he, he was so sweet to me. And Mike he Douglas, because it was a tribute sort of to both of them. And Dinah Shore, who was gone. But, you know, those are the shows I watched as a kid. That's Isn't how it funny I, how when you talked before about a world without VCRs and stuff, when, when, when we were kids and we watched TV, I'd watch Dinah Shore. Me too. I'd sit in my house and be like, you know, I don't know who the hell this broad is, but I'm going to watch. Because the point is, what else was there? There was you nothing. You learned to like those shows right. or, or, or digest them, because it's like, what the hell is we going to do? McGilla Gorilla. It was either that or the Little Rascals. Right. Or, you know, <clears throat> Kim, Kimba the White Lion. Remember that? Kimba the White It was Speed Racer. Yeah. So I uh, did the pilot, and then I went to NAPTI, and all of the TV people, which is a convention for television right. executives, uh, station owners, and they came and they said, well, if it doesn't work, are you going to do like, you know, Geraldo and Jenny Jones? Because those were the shows that were number one at the time. It was, you know, more. Are you going to reformat? Well, they were afraid that this wouldn't work because it hadn't been on in 25 years, right? And they were afraid that I would become 
just like the other shows where people were punching each other and, you know, this oh, I, I had an affair with him and right. they, that I would change Who, the genre. Who's the real father, yeah. Correct. And I said, I will never do that. I will just walk away before I do that. And they said, all right, we'll try it. So they were hesitant. The station owners. <laughs> I can imagine you on a show. It's not your baby. Exactly. And you being, okay, calm yeah, down, everybody. Yeah, everybody, please. I please. couldn't do that. I really could. I don't know how they sleep. I watch Warrior still on. I'm like, that guy, exactly. what does he and Connie talk about at night? Okay, today I had two transvestite <laughs> short people and uh, their tall boyfriend. I don't know. How many years do you do the talk show? Six. I told them initially. I had a baby who was one. I said, I'm going to do the show for five years, and then I'm quitting before he goes to kindergarten. I said, I just want you to know, before he starts, like, first grade real school, I'm quitting because this is a toxic business. I can't imagine what it would do to a kid. It's too much for me. And I also knew in, in success how much money it was. It was an insane amount of money. Mm-hmm. So I told them from the beginning, I'm only doing uh, five. It was a four-year deal. I said, I'm only doing four years because he would be five. And they bought it. They said yes. But in year one, it was such a big hit. Sure. That they said, please give us two more years. Please, we'll give you, you know, the Oprah deal. So I agreed to do six. Now, in my fifth year, they said, please sign on. That's when I begged you to do the Jackie Gleason spinoff. And you turned to me and said, you you leaned into me very calmly. You said, I can't. I'll never forget this. You leaned to me and you said, I can't. You said, I'm about to sign a deal. I'm going to make, quote, that sick Oprah money. Exactly. I remember seeing that going, fuck. It was. That goddamn sick Oprah money. It was it's sick Oprah way. money. Yeah. yeah. So I signed on for two more years. And then, you know, in the fifth year, they kept saying, you know, I had one year left. Come on, um, we're going to offer you this. And you didn't. Why? Honestly, Alec, the truth is, I felt if you have $100 million in the bank and you're you done. think you need $100 million more, mm-hmm. you're missing your life. Right. I had three children at the time, right? I had three kids under the age of five. And my mother died at 40. I was 39. My show ended right when I was 40. I thought any day they're going to diagnose me with breast cancer, I'm going to be gone. I wanted to go spend the time raising my children the way my mother didn't get to. So there was no amount of money. They kept upping the money and upping the money. And, you know, Dick Robertson. They always buy you. They they, They try. Dick Robertson has said to me, who's still around, the older guy who used to work at Warner Brothers, he said never in his life did he see somebody walk away from that much money. Mm -hmm. He said he still doesn't believe. Sometimes Mm -hmm. he thinks about that moment, you know, because he walked in and he's like, I've been authorized to present you with this, you know, and thinking I was going to go, well, okay. But when you walked away from that, because this is something that I wrestle with sometimes, you you want to be more proactive and involved with your kids. I mean, that's I don't I don't dispute that. I mean, that's obviously very very important. I made a lot of my choices around that as well, and continue to now that I'm having a, another baby. Right. Like like beyond this thing of not wanting to have money control your life, was it also? Did you become someone? You said I'm sick of her and I'm sick of that. Like that's Rosie in one stage of the rocket ship, and now it's time to walk away from that. Yes. I had morphed into a different person. Right. Right, because at the beginning of that show, the concept of knowing Barbara Streisand, of knowing Tom Cruise, of knowing you, like I had worked with the actors I had worked with. I knew those people, and I was friends with them, but that didn't mean that I felt I was part of the showbiz community. But when that show took off, and I had literally interviewed everyone from Walter Cronkite to, you know, Joan Plowright, like to, you know. And everyone was happy to be on your show. Yes. It wasn't an obligation. Exactly. And it was, you know, it was the first one of its kind. There's a lot of them now. And, you know, Ellen has has done it amazingly well. And she had all of my same producers. She had Jim Paratori. She had the same team. And she went and she did it. And I think she's very good at it. You know, I really do. But I know that I could not have done it any longer than Mm -hmm. I did it. I knew I was not a marathon runner. And then when you stopped, what happened? I was, um, I felt free. First of all, I had just sort of come out. 
right? right. I'd written my first book, and it talked about my being gay and, and all of the struggles that I had with how to, how to announce that. And, and I did it in conjunction with an ACLU case about foster care because I was a foster parent and blah, blah, blah. So I didn't want it just to be about, hey, like, let's talk about my sex life and sexual preference. You know, I, I wanted it to be about something more. So there was a case with uh, the Lofton Cruteau case down in Florida, two men who had adopted this children, and they serial converted from HIV positive to negative because both men were nurses. And they wanted to take the kids away after they serial converted. So I actually, uh, there was a law at the time in Florida that gay people could not adopt even the foster children they raised. So I I, I went through this lawsuit. And well, the book came out three months after 9-11. So it was sort of like nobody really cared. 9-11 happened. And thank God I was off the following May because I I did not think, and, and I think there was some, you know, intervention from above that I was off during the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. I think I would have probably lost my mind on sure. national television. Right. You know, when I could not believe when my show was off and we were going into war, going to right. Afghanistan, like, right. and Phil Donahue was on again. And, you know, I, I spray painted no war on the back right. of my denim right. jacket. Iraq. And yeah. I could, oh yeah, right. I couldn't believe it. Right. I just couldn't believe it. Now, apropos of that, I mean, obviously, you, like me, you don't hesitate to speak your mind. Right. Now, you went from being ubiquitous, the show, so forth, and do you enjoy that now where you don't, you're not out there and you're not an opinion maker? Yes, but the fall between one and the other extreme was intense and sharp and shocking. How it, so? Well, you know, I, when I was on the cover of Newsweek, you know, when my show premiered, it said the queen of nice. I remember holding it up on, on live TV and saying, this is going to bite me in the ass one day because you know what? I'm not that nice. If you ever saw my stand-up act, I go after people and issues that I find abhorrent and repulsive and I present them in a comical way that makes you laugh and yet think. So I knew that that was never, ever the totality of who I was. So um, I was not, you know... Uh, naive enough to think that I was going to simply glide slowly down towards the anonymity, you know. Uh, but it was very, very harsh, and it was very, very quick, and it was a very big shock. Also, I was sued by the magazine company. And when you're sued by a corporation, right, I was sued for $300 million, right, by this corporation, they— Why? I, when my show was ending, I was convinced to do a magazine like Oprah did right. with uh, my name on it, Rosie. And I was totally had creative control, and they had the sales kind of control. What happened was after my show ended, the guy who worked there said, well, you signed a stupid contract, and your lawyers weren't good, and I own the show, and I'm going to do what I want, and fired the staff, and um, wanted to do like thinner thighs in 30 days, and all the things that are not me. And I said, well, you can't do that. And he said, well, you didn't see this loophole in the contract. So I remember saying to um, my uh, friends or to some learned people I knew, who is the toughest and the best female lawyer in New York? And they said, Mary Jo White. (laughs) And Mary Jo White, who uh, brought down the first bombers at the 9-11, the Khalid, Khalil, Khalil, whatever his name is. (laughs) And she has just been appointed with the Obama administration, mm-hmm. she's like a huge monkey muck. Well, I went into her office on a Saturday. She had shorts on and a T-shirt, and I gave her the contract, and I said, now, I want to ask you, am I right or am I wrong? She said, well, you're right. And I said, she goes, but I don't know that that means you're going to win. I said, but I am right. What I'm saying is right, mm-hmm. that this man cannot take what I've worked for for 20 years, my name and what it represents, and reformat him because mm-hmm. I signed a contract. It made me into Suzanne Summers. Correct. Uh, or who, who I actually like and think is very smart. Well, more like make me into a Cosmo girl. Okay. Right. And uh, she said, no, you're right. And if you're tough enough, you'll win. But they're going to put you through hell. 
And they did. I was like on the cover of the Post like 93 times. And when you came out of it, you prevailed. Yes. Right. But it was exhausting, expensive, and painful litigation. It certainly was. Now, we're going to run out of time. Okay. So I'm going to say two things. Go. And I want to say this carefully because this is not about personal animus or somebody who pissed you off. What's one thing you were involved in that you went to the map cause-wise or something or an event, something you really went out there and was the most outrageous that made you the most indignant? You know, I think it would probably be – the right of gay people to adopt in Florida. We actually did a canvassing of, of the state of Florida back in, you know, in the 90s when my show was on because I thought, how, if we're going to fight this, we're going to lobby it. Let's try to see what the what the temperature is of, of the state and found a surprising amount, like disproportionately large amount of people would prefer that children had no parents than gay parents. That was at the time in the 90s. Now, look how things have changed now, right? The, the ruling has been overturned and, you know, gays are allowed to adopt in pretty much every state, I think, at this point. And we're allowed to get married and we're allowed... So a lot has changed since then, but that was quite disheartening at the time. I, I think also, you know, my saying that I do not believe the official story of 9-11 has brought a, a tremendous amount of angst mm-hmm. into my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't accuse anyone specifically or mm-hmm. say that I know any answers. Sure. I simply say it defies the laws yeah. of physics. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're here we are. It's the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Exactly. And people still don't want to talk about that. Well, and that's when, when people come over to me and say, I want to talk to you about 9-11. I said, before we have the conversation, I just want to ask you one thing. Who killed John Kennedy? And if they say Lee Harvey Oswald, I say then we're not going to have a conversation. But if they – you know, because honestly, you either have the benevolent father image in your mind and you can't – Of Uncle Sam. Right. It's that cognitive dissonance, right? You can't hold two opposing ideas in your brain at one time. You can love the United States of America. Bingo. Right. I love love my country and therefore I want to seek this, 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 Exactly right. And therefore democracy demands dissent. And if you have questions, that's part of being a democracy. And you and I have shared that where people doubt our patriotism because we're critical. I mean, if you look at my Twitter feed. Like, I'm going to go off Twitter. Uh, so I think I am too. Yes. It's too much negativity. And it's too much negativity that I don't get in real life. I can walk anywhere. Even to like, you know, my son goes to a military school. These are all Republicans. These are, you know, and hello, Miss O'Donnell. Thank you. You know, like right. unbelievably kind people in the world. Right. My experience well, is. Well, the a, anonymity of Twitter correct, sets that up. Correct. And that's what it is. It's like standing on a stage in a darkened comedy club and people throwing shit at you and you still trying to do your act. I want to close with one thing. Go. And that is, I watch people who are virtuosic musicians. I mean, I do this announcing for the New York Philharmonic. I just went to Long Long's Benefit on Monday at Carnegie Hall. I have this tremendous, tremendous, almost insatiable appetite for the classical repertoire and the people who play it well. And, and I think to myself, you know, where is that in what we do? Mm. Like, like acting, you know, there's people talk about Olivier and Kevin Klein and, you know, and, and Colin Firth and all the really, really beautifully etched actors of their day. And then I think about you. And I think about to be able to talk on a talk show and be able to communicate the way you did, you remind me in the conversational mode of a classical piano player because you can touch – you can do anything. That's very sweet. You can play anything. You are funny as hell. You're tough. You're smart. You are so many things. You could have done anything. Mm-hmm. You're so tenacious and you're so smart. If this hadn't worked out for you, what was among the fallbacks? What might you have done with your life if you didn't do this? I never had a fallback on purpose. And my dad used to say that all the time. You need a fallback. But I knew that this career was so difficult to succeed in that if you had a fallback, you would fall mm-hmm. back. So I didn't have one. However, I know I would have been a teacher 
because it was teachers who saved my life. We were in an abusive home. My dad had some issues after my mother died and even before. And it was teachers in the public school system who saved my life, literally. I don't think I would be here. I don't think, you know, when my grandmother died, who had lived with us after uh, when my mother had uh, died, you know, when she died when I was in high school, all the teachers came to the funeral. All the like we were we were five orphan children pretty much who were embraced and taken in by the teachers in our um, communities. And I, I definitely would have been a teacher. I love kids, uh, and uh, congratulations because you know, yeah. wait till you see what it feels like doing it at fifty versus doing it at thirty, honey. It's a different gig. Tell me how. Oh my God! First of all, it's so much calmer. You're so much more relaxed. You enjoy every moment so much more. Like this baby, first of all, she's a dream. She, she wakes up. At, she goes to bed at 9 o'clock after a bottle, wakes up at 6, give her a bottle, and she sleeps in the bed with us till about 9, 30, 10. Every night, Can have her? That's what, you know, and Michelle, my wife, this is her first kid, goes, let's get another one. I'm like, you're out of your mind. They don't come like this normally. No, she's just, it's a dream. And I feel younger because of it. I feel like my desire. Alive. Oh, my God, Alec. It, like, turned on every creative, it's just, it rebirthed me. It rebirthed me in a way that I was not expecting and I'm so thankful for. There's something about this experience uh, that's very different from the other kids. You know, when you, your first baby, because you only had one. So your first baby, I always say the other kids never get what that first kid got. And I'm not the first kid in my right. family, right? My brother Eddie is. So in a way, this baby feels like the first kid all over again. Rosie O'Donnell, entertainer, activist, philanthropist extraordinaire, and above all, a mom to five. Imagine the hand-me-downs in that house. Thank you for doing this, and I love you. And I love you, too, and I'm sending you so many baby things. Don't buy everything, because I have a lot of extras. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now.